church. It's good to be here with you this morning. I actually joined you all online last week. And so I want to say a special thank you to those of you who are on the other side of the screen. Uh, we just love and appreciate knowing that you're there. You are a meaningful part of the body of Christ. And so we're so grateful that we can be united with you as we worship. And for the, all of those of you who are here in house with us, there's nothing better than hearing voices raised to Jesus. Uh, we love to greet you as you come in and as you leave and to hear how God is impacting you through his word. It is a joy to serve alongside you all the things. Are we not, both online and in-house, the most blessed people on the planet? Amen. <laughs> so if you have been hanging in there with us since we started our series a little over five months ago, you know that we have covered a lot of ground, and that is putting it lightly. As I've mentioned before, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most comprehensive exposition of the Christian life that we have available to us. Now what I'm about to say is just my little old opinion. But I think a fairly good argument could be made that if we had nothing else to go by to help us know and understand who we have been made to be and what we have been put on this earth to do as Christ followers, Matthew 5 through 7 would be enough. And it would keep us pretty busy till the day we die. So just take a look at this recap of what we've been over. In chapter 5, we hit the Beatitudes. All those blessed are those who sayings that were followed by Jesus' declaration that his disciples are salt and light in this world of death, decay, and destruction. Then we learn what it means to fulfill the law, where Jesus really starts hammering away at the fact that the Christian life is not so much about our outward behavior. We can manage that fairly well. But it's about our hearts, about the motivation behind everything that we do. And that makes all the difference in the world. Not led right into those six antitheses, murder and anger, adultery and lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies where Jesus just keeps going deeper and deeper, taking our understanding of the righteous requirements of the law above and beyond what the Pharisees lived and taught. In chapter 6, Jesus continues his teaching on righteousness, but he shifts the focus away from our personal character and moral righteousness, and he brings our attention to our outward religious righteousness, and he zeroes in on our nearly irresistible temptation toward pride and showing off. And he uses the examples of giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. You may recall that our big takeaway was this. When you are tempted to show off, hide. And when you're tempted to hide, live boldly. But whether you're hiding or living boldly, do it all for the glory of God. And then we were encouraged because we saw that God sees and knows all about the normal, everyday cares and responsibilities of life that everyone has. He cares about how we think about our treasures, whatever they may be, and he encourages us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And last, 
He knew, he knows that we need food and drink and clothes. But if our treasures are indeed in heaven, then we don't have to worry. When we seek the righteousness of God and his kingdom first, we can be certain that all these things will be provided for us as well. In chapter 7, which we got to just a few weeks ago on January 9th, Jesus turned our attention to our relationships. And we learned how important it is to guard against the two extremes of inappropriately judging others versus not using any discernment at all when it comes to who we share the precious truths of the gospel with. We need to be humble enough to deal with our own sin before we ever seek to help others with theirs. And we need to be wise and courageous enough to walk away from those who are blatantly unreceptive to the truth. Those are some weighty topics. But last week, Jesus spoke some much-needed hope. He promised to grant us our requests when we persistently ask, seek, and knock. But remember, he promised to grant us those things that we need to prosper in his kingdom. Most especially especially the good things, fullness of the Holy Spirit living within us, giving us wisdom and discernment and courage to follow and trust the Lord every day of our lives. Which brings us to verse 12, which has come to be known as the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So there's a time a little later in Jesus' ministry when an expert in the law asked Jesus to strip away all the details and just get to the meat of what God really wants. What is the greatest commandment in the law, he asked. Jesus didn't even hesitate. He actually quoted two Old Testament scriptures in reply. The first from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. He said that everything in the law and prophets hung on those two things. But here in our verse this morning, it's like Jesus took the second of those two commands, love your neighbor as yourself, and he just said it in a little bit different way. Basically, treat others the way you want to be treated. That's it. It is so simple, right? So elementary. But have you ever stopped to think about how profound it truly is? One commentator said, if this teaching of Jesus were to be lived out in the world, the whole system of evil would be dramatically shaken. Even if it were to be manifested seriously in the church, its impact would be incalculable. I think he's right. Can you imagine what it would be like if we all, every one of us, spoke to and about other people the very same way that we want them to speak to and about us. 
What if we were to honor and respect other people the way we want to be honored and respected? What if we truly love the people around us, genuinely, sincerely, all of them, including our enemies, the way we want to be loved? What if we were just as kind and gracious and forgiving to others as we so desperately want them, need them to be with us? In person, on social media, behind their backs, in our own hearts and minds. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? I mentioned just a minute ago that we've seen how this portion of Jesus' sermon in chapter 7 is really all about relationships. And that's the thing. Relationships are hard. Amen? It is hard not to be inappropriately judgmental. It's hard to know when we might need to walk away from someone who has contempt for God and truth. It's hard to treat others the way we want to be treated. But why? Why is that so hard? Well, David reminded us last week. Actually, the text itself reminded us Last week, in verse 11, the verse right before this verse, where it says, If you then who are evil, <sighs> and there we were, we were reminded once again with, of the doctrine of total depravity. Jesus just doesn't let us forget. And it's that understanding that helps inform us when we wrestle with why this very next verse is so hard for us. It's hard because there's not a single ounce of any one of us that hasn't been twisted and distorted by sin. That fundamental understanding has got to govern us when we wrestle with what Jesus puts before us right here to do. That though we were created in God's image, we are now, every one of us, living with the devastating consequences of our rebellion against God. Sin affects our relationship with God. It affects our understanding of ourselves, and it affects our relationships with one another. It messes everything up. Yes, through faith in Christ, we have been set free from sin's ultimate power over us, but we still fight the battle of sinful desires within us every day. That is why we still celebrate the road of sanctification, right? It's part of the good news. Because day by day, as we walk with God, we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember, Jesus just got done saying that when we ask and seek and knock, that that's what the Father will do. He will give us his Holy Spirit to help us live this kingdom life to which we have been called. He'll give us everything that we need, especially what we need to treat others the way we want to be treated. In Jesus' words... This is the law and the prophets. I love how he just kind of puts a bow on it. Because if you'll recall, he said all the way back at the beginning of his sermon in chapter 5, verse 17, that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. 
but to fulfill them. And this is now what God requires of us. But he's going to give us what we need to do it. Himself. Through his spirit who lives within us. So what do you think, church? What if we made even just this one thing our goal this year? I mean, let's just see what would happen. Just right here among us, here at Four Mile Church, and in all the places that God has positioned us around the tri-state area to be salt and light. Can you imagine the kind of in impact we could have for the kingdom of God in 2022 by the power of his spirit if we ask, seek, and knock for this? To be so filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that we simply treat others the way we want to be treated for the glory of God alone. That sums up the law and the prophets and that's what Jesus came to make possible. All right, so Jesus isn't done yet. Are you still with me? That's a lot, especially when we kind of go back and we're reminded of all that Jesus has been saying in this relatively itty-bitty little sermon, 10 to 12 minutes, right, in one sitting probably. He covers some ground, but he isn't done. He continues. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So before we get into the meat of these two verses, I just want to take or make note of two things. For whatever reason, we tend to get all caught up in the periphery and the details that are not ours to figure out. There's no real need to know just how many few means. Don't, don't waste your time trying to figure that out. That is not the point. Now, no doubt about it, the contrast of the many versus the few is sobering. But when you think about it, you've got the seven plus billion people on the planet right now plus all the ones who have gone before us, plus all the ones who are going to come after us, there are going to be a lot of people who become disciples of Jesus. But compared to all of humanity, we will be relatively few. But again, it's not our business to figure out just how many are going to be saved. With Jesus' warning here, he hits every single one of us squarely between the eyes and says, which path are you on? That is what you need to, need to be most concerned about. And second, there's also no reason really to get all caught up in which comes first, the gate or the path. That's not the point either. The point is this. In this life, there are two paths. That's it. And every single person that we just mentioned, past, present, and future, is on one or the other. And on the day of judgment, we will all stand before the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and we will receive exactly what each gate or path leads to. And you might be thinking, well, certainly there have got to be more than two. Nope. Just two. You're either for God or you're against him. 
It's just that there are lots of different ways to be against him. And that's why the gate that leads to destruction is wide. And those who enter by it are many. You see, the wide path is the way of the world. It's attractive. It's relatively easy. It doesn't take much thought, really. It's wide because it accommodates the masses. It allows us to carry all of our worldly treasures with us. It allows us to carry all of our baggage from the past with us. It allows us to do and believe, really, whatever we want. Because we don't want to offend anyone on the wide path. We don't want to inconvenience anyone. And so we just keep adding lanes, right? There's room for materialism. There's room for all manner of sexual sin. There's room for substance abuse. There's room for pride and arrogance and self-importance. There's room for hatred and bitterness right along with unforgiveness. Bring it along. There's room for compromise. There's room for any and every religion. There's room for no truth whatsoever. Anything goes. It's a very attractive path, is it not? I mean, there are no rules. It doesn't require discipline. It doesn't require self-denial. It can be all about you. Honestly, it's the path that most people are on. And so it's easy to think that it's the right one. I mean, how could so many people be so wrong? Many years prior to Jesus' sermon, Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. All throughout the ages, it's been the same. In Jesus' words, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Destruction. Not just hard times. Not just unfortunate circumstances. Destruction. Hell. Separation from God and all things good forever. That's where the wide path leads. We have got to understand that the path we're on in this life has eternal ramifications in the next. The narrow path, on the other hand, that's hard. It requires strength and endurance, perseverance, self Denial, focus, determination, discipline, faith. It's hard because it's far easier to go the way of our fallen human nature than to go the way of righteousness. It's hard because it requires that we examine ourselves and that we own and take responsibility for our sin. It's hard to judge without condemnation or self-righteousness. It's hard to turn the other cheek when we're wronged. It's hard to love our enemies. I mean, let's be honest, it's hard to love the people we love. Am I right? <laughs> it's hard to treat others the way that we want them to treat us. All this stuff in this sermon is hard. 
And none of it, not an ounce of it, can be done in our own strength. No wonder there are so few on the narrow path. It's called a narrow path because we just can't do or believe whatever we want. There's no room for the empty philosophies of this world. Humanism and moral relativism probably being the most prominent right now. Humanism, basically a whole group of people making me, myself, and I the center of the universe. And moral relativism that arrogantly asserts that my truth is the only truth, even if it flies smack in the face of your truth. It's ridiculous. <laughs> There's no room for that on the narrow path. There's only room for absolute, objective truth that is found in God's word. It's narrow because it is the way of Christ. As such, there's no room through the narrow gate or on the narrow path for the baggage of unforgiveness or greed or anger or malice or slander. There's no room for our worldly treasures and our pursuits. There's no room to make it all about me. The narrow path is all about Jesus. He even called himself the gate at one point in time. Going through it and walking the hard, narrow path requires that we die to ourselves and obey him, no matter the cost. We take one next step toward him at a time, day by day by day. Sometimes it feels very slow going. It's not always exciting or noteworthy as far as the world is concerned. But hopefully, though, you caught what is most startling about these verses. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. It's a command, a directive. It's the only way that leads to life. But we have got to place ourselves, remember, in the place of those disciples that day before we ever start to think about ourselves. This sermon was rocking their worlds. They were likely still reeling by what Jesus said all the way back at the beginning of a sermon, which for them was just a few minutes ago, when he basically described the narrow gate that disciples are expected to walk through, but he didn't put it in those words. He put it this way, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Just a little bit later in the sermon, he said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect right here, enter by the narrow gate. The disciples that day could not escape what was undeniably true, that it was utterly hopeless for them. They couldn't do it. They didn't have the kind of righteousness that they needed on their own. And neither do we. 
it is utterly impossible for us to walk through the narrow gate on our own. And yet Jesus commands it here. This is why we celebrate the gospel. We've seen this slide before and we will see it again, but it's perfect for today. Here is the truth of the gospel. We are all, every single one of us, born squarely on that wide path that leads to destruction. That's what God's word clearly tells us. We are born dead in our sins and transgressions, separated from God without hope in the world. Without hope. That's the doctrine of total depravity. And unless God intervenes, that is exactly where every single one of us would stay. But God did intervene. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God moved first. He always moves first. It's an incredible and profound truth. He sent Jesus to this world to fulfill the law and the prophets, to live his life on that narrow path in perfect obedience and submission to the Father, something that we could never do, no matter how hard we try. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. He suffered the punishment, taking the Father's wrath for our sin, And three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating both death and sin forever for all of those who would respond to his call and receive the gift of faith. That's what it means then to be justified before God, covered by that red dot of Jesus' blood. The old life on that wide path passes away, and then we're able to live a new life on that narrow path by the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God alone. But that is all the work of God from start to finish. No one finds or opens the narrow gate. No one walks on that narrow, hard path on their own. We don't even look for it. But God in his mercy came for us without even us recognizing that we needed him too. That's amazing grace. That is unfathomable mercy. Our righteousness on our own, it's his filthy rags. We can't try harder or be better on our own. There's nothing that we can do to get through that gate unless Christ makes it possible for us. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no wiggle room. Only the narrow gate of Jesus leads to eternal life. It's only by the sheer gift of grace through faith that we enter. It's nothing that we do. It is only the blood of Jesus, which is why all the glory goes to God alone. 
And then the life of obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit is that narrow path. It's not always easy. As a matter of fact, it's not at all easy. It's a life of daily dying to ourselves, of daily laying down our lives. And we're going to screw up all along the way, I guarantee it. But there's grace along that narrow path. There's forgiveness and there is joy. There is living, tangible hope. We just sang about it. Because we're promised that by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being sanctified all along the way until one day when we finally take our last breath and we enter into eternal life where we will be glorified and we'll live with him forever. I'm afraid that the sad commentary on the church today is that the gospel message has been terribly distorted. Far, far too often the invitation is just ask, just ask Jesus into your heart and all will be well and you'll get to heaven. There's little to no talk of the narrow hard path of life with Jesus. Of day by day putting off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires in order that we be made new in the attitude of our minds that we put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, that doesn't sell nearly as well, does it? We want the gospel to be a ticket to heaven with no strings attached. We want to go through the narrow gate but live on the wide path. But that's not how it works. This side of heaven, life with and for Jesus, is hard. It's costly. It's painful. Folks, that's the truth of it. That's what Jesus said right here. From beginning to end, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to eternal life. The prosperity and the ease and all the blessings we so desperately want some of them will be ours in this life. No doubt about it, we are richly blessed, abundantly so. But the full prosperity of the kingdom, beyond our wildest imagination, that joy is reserved for us. That won't be ours until these bodies die and we are resurrected to eternal life with Jesus in heaven. That is the reward or the narrow path. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Truth that sets us free and grace that is our only hope. I pray that you would grant that we would enter the narrow gate and walk the hard, narrow path that is surrender and obedience to Jesus Christ our Lord, for the glory of God the Father. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So I love that right before the message, we sang the gospel, Jesus, our living hope, and now we're going to sing it again. And we're also going to declare what we believe. We're going to be reminded because we need to be reminded again and again that this is all because of what God has done. It's the only way we enter the narrow gate. It's all because of who he is that we can have the assurance of salvation and joy unspeakable 
as we walk the narrow path with our eyes on the prize of living with him forever and resurrection life.